Hey, um, remember when uh, you were in the, the Beatles and uh, you did that um, album, Abbey Road, and uh, at the very end of the song, uh, it, the song it goes, uh, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. You remember that? <laughs> yes. Uh, is that true? Yes, Chris, in, in my experience it is, I find the more you give, the more you get. <sighs> All right, welcome to another episode of Between Two Wheels Podcast. This is Tyler Yonke coming to you today. No, no guest hosts, but we have a guest <laughs> in studio in the office here, Mike Sayers. Welcome, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, hold it. that up nice and close. And yeah. your son's here. He's off camera. Um, he's playing games, but we won't we won't join him in unless it gets to specific stuff that we need to talk to. Him yeah, about. if you want to know the uh, secrets, then uh, he'll tell you. Okay, good to know. good to know. Uh, well, thank you for coming in. First of all, I really appreciate it. Um, you, Mike, is in case people don't know, Mike will give you a breakdown because we'll walk mm-hmm. through your your history here. But well known in the the Sacramento area internationally as well for cycling. Uh, and you're venturing into some new stuff with your endurance and your fitness and your coaching. But uh, why don't you give us a breakdown of kind of who you are, what you're doing right now, and then we'll go back, start from the beginning and kind of work our way through your life. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Mike Sayers. I grew up here in Sacramento and uh, I currently uh, partially own and run uh, an endurance training facility in Midtown Sacramento. And we kind of cover the gambit. We, we do coaching, bike fitting. Uh, physiological testing, and then we have a running component. We have a running coach that works for us from Fleet Feet, and uh, we service some runners with strength and conditioning classes, and then I do some personal training, and my partner, Julie Young, also does personal training. But, but let's talk about some of this real quick, and it's gonna, this is going to be all over the board, Yeah, but this is kind of the way I like it. Um, how do you feel about you know coaches, especially cycling coaches, it feels like you can just have an online presence. You guys went for brick and mortar. And what was the, the kind of the, the thought process of doing that? And how is it going? Well, it's always a struggle, of course, because it's like any small business. I mean, we, right. we have the same issues. But I think for us, the first and foremost goal was to create a community. So if I just go back a little bit and say, like, when I was racing full time, you know, it, I didn't feel like I had a place where I could go and get information or just hang out or do a workout or do whatever. Um, if you went to a bike shop, then clearly the bike shop wanted you to buy something and then leave as a, I'm speaking as a bike racer too. Right, right. Um, so that was where the initial <clears throat> idea came from. And I really got the idea from my best friend in life who is in Seattle, who has a very similar, much larger, much more successful facility uh, called Metier. Um, is that and, Todd? Uh, yeah, that's Todd Harriet. And Todd was my coach and now he's my best friend. And, you know, Todd and I... Were those conflicting? I mean, you couldn't be before, but now he's your best friend? There's quite a story there, actually. <laughs> there's quite a story. But no, to answer your question, in our instance, no, we could not be friends until after we were. I was done racing, gotcha, gotcha. pretty much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the brick and mortar, first and foremost, the community thing. Secondarily, we really felt like it would show our clients or just the community that we were invested in them, not just sitting 
in a room somewhere doing coaching programs or talking to them on the phone or texting or whatever that we actually were like, okay, well, we have the space and we can do things for you in addition to just coaching. And, and the coaching part is just one part of it. The bike fitting part is a part of it, the personal training part. And, you know, personally, I've gotten a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment by working with people who don't, who don't really race. You know, that's not really where our focus is. I mean, certainly we can do that. But uh, like, for example, one of my best clients is uh, Judy Polnikoff, who used to own City Bicycle Works, which is now the Trek store. She doesn't own it anymore, but she's she and I spend at least two hours a week together uh, working on her fitness to do whatever that she wants to do, whether it's riding or running or skiing or whatever. Well, you know, that's cycling and we can talk about kind of the the path that cycling takes in its itself here and even in northern california and the racing it seems like things are and skies pulling out you know there's always things going and um so focusing your business not specifically on the cycling world is probably a good idea especially with the running that they have in town and then you can kind of fluff off and use this the cycling part to I don't know, to do something with it there. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie because uh, I, I didn't think it was going to go this way. I mean, I really thought that I, th- I thought it would be cycling based and really only focus in that area. But it was, I mean, the fact is, if we go back through my history, I was unable or I, I was unwilling to go to college because I was trying to chase my cycling career. So this has ended up being my MBA in business because I, I run the day to day and it's taught me how to be a bookkeeper. It's taught me how customer service. And, and again, I, I've made no bones about this. It has really absolutely changed me as a person and it from the very top to the very bottom. And the way I deal with my son, the way I deal with my wife, the way I deal with other people, um, it, it really helped me transition from being a professional bike rider and being in that world, a very high pressure very fast, especially the way I, we were living it, where I was on the road, you know, 200 plus days a right. year. It got me out of that and it got me a lot more centered and it gave me a lot more foundation. And so the business for me has done more than just provided an outlet for me to work at and and all the things that come with that. It is it has really changed me. And so what are some of those things that you've had to, well, not just had to change, but what's changed about you specifically because you have, is it, is it like kind of the community outreach part or um you know i think it's given me a better understanding of people in general um it's given me a better understanding of of character and then from that i've been able to kind of work with myself and you know i was a pretty high strung guy when i was a rider i mean i i had a bit you're, of, you're not now <laughs> i try not to be i mean the truth is i try so not, not as to much be. as not it? as much <laughs> i mean i i do try to I'm a lot more introspective of, of myself. Um, I think I, I think the problem with being at a really high level of cycling and when I mean high level, I mean the highest level. Right. So tour de France level is, uh, you get caught up in that world and it's, it's really difficult to get out of it. Not, not because you don't want to, but because it's, that's what the job requires. Uh, the job requires you to be 100% in especially if you're fighting for things like yellow jerseys. And so for me, it has allowed me to get out of that space and be a little more in touch with people and certainly a lot more in touch with myself and really just, I think, have a lot more empathy, a lot more sympathy and a lot more understanding of where people are coming from in everyday life. And 
how they want to weave in their athletic prowess, whatever that is, into that life. And again, when you when when you ride full time and that's what you're paid to do, and I, and I really did embrace it as a job. I mean, it, I, sure. I I didn't look at it as half of anything, and my wife could certainly attest to that. I mean, for me, it was at least forty hours a week, and that that included the training, but then the off the bike stuff too. The just the bike maintenance, the body maintenance, and everything. It's like all of these high profile athletes, LeBron James, all these guys. So. I approached it like that. I mean, that's what I dedicated my time to. And there was always very little time off. And then you were right back at it again. And and I think you get in that mode and you get in that uh and you get in that world and sometimes you lose touch with what reality is. Well, in some of that, I mean, it's the the world of cycling, because if you're at the top, it's always I don't want to be pushed off the top step. Right. But even if you're in that world but you're on the bottom rung of it. You're getting a what one year, two year contract. I mean, someone else young is coming in. Right. You've got, always got to be. If there's no stability, no. So and you always have to be fighting because right. if you're at the top, you're fighting to right. stay at the top. Right. And if you're not at the top, you're fighting to get to the top. And you know, it's it's really you know, I I used to tell when I was running the national team, I used to tell some of the young guys, you know, you see these riders some of the best in the world and they win just pick a, a stage of the tour de France. And I mean, you can see the pure joy that some of these guys have. Right. And it's not, it's not because they just won a bike race. It's because they may, in fact, some of those guys may have spent 20 plus years trying to win a single bike race. And they happen to win one at the biggest event ever. And yeah, they are super happy. And they'll not have to buy a beer for the rest of their life in their hometown. Yeah. And, you know, those. And, and I do. Th exactly. And I do think that on top of all of that, I, I believe that high pressure athletes, not not and not even high pressure. I think even weekend warriors don't allow themselves to enjoy their successes because you're always fighting to be better. It's so if I train harder, if I go harder, if I do more, if I do this, if I, you know, and so there's a lot of, I, I need to do this. And I think that creates kind of a negative connotation in a way, in a way. And then when they get success, it's like, Oh yeah, you know, I had a success and they let themselves enjoy it for maybe five minutes. And then they're back on to like heavy critique. And for sure, I was the embodiment of that. How was how that as a master's now? So you, you do master's racing and yep. um, maybe you don't have to put in the effort that you were doing before, but you see a lot of master's racers are really intense. I mean, it's yeah. it's the be all end all. And um, I don't try to do that. And maybe that's where my results suffer, <laughs> but I'm enjoying my life with kids and everything right. too. And uh, but what do you, what do you do or even coaching of trying to maybe take these guys, you know, even a, an aspect of doing maybe some running so that they have some, some bone strength in them. And so yeah. they're not brittled old masters guys that only ride a bike. Right. And there, and I've been really fortunate because I've been able to work with a lot of very talented, uh, exercise phys people who have opened my eyes to things like running because like running when I was a rider was like taboo. Right, right. But now it's actually an integral part of, for example, the Dutch national team, they use it as an integral part of their development program. Mm. So, you know, I mean, you, so I guess to answer your question directly, cause that was sidebar, but, um, the fact is you, I think you do have to find a life balance. And for me, 
Um, my wife and I give her all the credit in the world. She was integral in my retirement phase. And she really put it quite succinctly to me one night. I remember exactly the conversation. She literally turned to me and said, you are more unhappy racing your bike than you, than you are not racing your bike. Hmm. Like the pendulum had swung because I was 38 years old. I'm going to races and my roommates are 22 years old. Right, right, right. They're on the upswing. They have unlimited energy. They have unlimited fitness. And at 38, I didn't have any of that. Like, I, you know, I didn't have unlimited energy. I didn't have unlimited fitness. Like my fitness, I had reached it and gone beyond it. And I was in loss prevention. So <laughs> it, it, it really became, I, I became more unhappy racing than I was racing. So that, that was really what told me I had to stop. Now you had, um, I would say two phases because you, you had the racing part and then you went into somewhat managing, yeah. whether it's the U23 team or doing stuff with BMC. And then this last year you were out doing with the Israel Cycling Academy. Uh, so was there, uh, was your wife concerned about, oh, now you've stopped racing, but you're on the road even more? Yes. Uh, <laughs> to answer your question, yes. Okay. Well, obviously that, that quit as well. So you're back. Are you even doing anything besides just some interim uh, managing not right now um there i'm working on a few projects but it's all just projects at this point and no i i'm not i haven't gone back to directing and the the fact was that that there was a period in time i i actually was on the road more as a director um because as we we go back to the original kind of the all-in like racing at that level or being part of a team at that world tour level is all-encompassing I was living in Europe and my family was living here. So I would do, I was doing upwards of like four months in Europe and then I would come home and I would hang out with my family for a couple of weeks and then I would go back. And, um, and then not only am I in Europe kind of on my own, which means not only for myself, but for the team, it was like, okay, well you don't have any other things going on. So you can go to this race and you can go to that race. Right. And of course I was happy to do it because that those guys were my family at that point. And so the staff and the riders became, you know, my outlet when I was on the road and they really were my family. I'm still very close with all of those people. Sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's really, it's really quite difficult. It's, it's, it's really easy to just, it's like anything. It's like any sport. It's really easy to sit on a couch and watch people perform and just think, man, that is, those are glory days. And they are at that moment, but there, there is a, there is a price to pay at every single level and it just it varies from from guy to guy what that price is sure and, and you can I, I doubt you look back with uh, too much regret at any maybe you do we can get into some of that but I mean uh, and, and let's go let's start actually talk about where how you got into cycling through some of your teams because it'll become evident that what I'm saying is you've had a you've had a pretty good life of in the cycling world and it's afforded you a lot of opportunities uh, including what you're doing now so Absolutely. how did you get into this sport because I, I imagine you played other sports growing up and I was just talking to your son he says he plays soccer um, and I always wonder how do Americans get into the sport of cycling because it's kind of a weird route usually to do so. Yeah, very interesting story, actually. Um, I grew up alpine ski racing. Uh, my dad was quite good and it runs in my family. And so I was racing from, I think um, the first race I ever did was like five or six years old and I was pretty heavy into it uh, up until about the time I got midway through high school. And then I started to kind of phase out a little bit only because I knew I was good enough to race at a local or maybe even a, uh, a continental level, but not really anywhere beyond that. 
And so long story short, I was hanging out or living in Olympic Valley at that point, which Squaw Valley. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Warren Gibson had the Plymouth Reebok team was located out of there. And in the summertime, those guys would would ask me to go ride with them because I would ride in the summer to keep fit for ski racing. And so I started riding with guys like uh, Drew Holdeman. That's a name that not many people would know, but he was a local, really good local amateur guy here in Northern California from San Jose. Um, and um, Price, uh, Daryl Price, I believe, who was went on a mountain bike. Anyway, I was riding with those guys, and and again, long story short, were they, they mostly a junior, like a development team at the yeah, time. Okay, yeah, they were a junior team. Uh, Larson was there, Steve Larson, yeah, yeah, rode yeah. for them, and they convinced me to go try a race. Uh, the first race I did uh, was in Patterson, just a local criterium in the middle of the Central Valley, and I ended up meeting another really good friend of mine who's from Sacramento, uh, Corey McCracken, who no longer lives here, but he and I kind of started off together down this road and we were working at a bike shop together in South Sac and we were racing on the weekends. And, and then I had a couple of interesting things happen. The first thing was I, I got an offer to go ride in France. Um, this was right away. So like 1992 and I was barely a cat too, uh, for a couple of months. So I did, um, with another, with a guy from Colorado and I was there for about a month, maybe six weeks and it kind of got my fire burning. Like I, it was just local racing around the Toulouse area, but it was good. It was good racing. It was hard. There was a lot of uh, Eastern Bloc guys there. So then I came back and I stayed. I was racing one year here in Northern California. And then again, through a series of events, through some connections, I, I got an opportunity to go back to Switzerland and race for the entire year. This would have been 1994. And so I did. Um, and that team was quite good. Um, I would say at that point they would rival any continental team in America. Um, and if you look at the roster, uh, there was a guy that was there that I ended up being teammates with years later, Alexander Moose, who was a big time guy at BMC and then went on to mountain bike right, professionally, right. Yeah. Uh, Swiss guy. And there was a couple of other guys that ended up, uh, going on to world tour level. Um, so after that year, I, I came back in August. I think I left right after Visalia. So it would have been, you know, first part of March, I think. And then I came back in August. So it's gone an entire year, almost an entire year. And when I came back, of course, nobody, everybody had kind of forgotten about me. And so uh, I was trying to find a team. I couldn't find a team. I couldn't get anybody to take me. And our a, a kind of a pillar in this community, Folsom specifically, John Cruz, offered to support me for a year and he he ran what is now Mike's bikes and Folsom it's not it wasn't Mike's when he had it but he supported me for a year and in, in that year um I was able to battle my way to at that point there was an amateur point series is this like 95 then, yeah around right 95 yeah. yeah so I was I was able to battle my way to second overall in this national point series were you riding solo or yeah, okay riding solo and I only went to half of the races and the guy who beat me was Thurlow Rogers who was on Nutrafig at that point and went on right. to you know he did every race right so then Nutraf uh, I got I went with a local team uh in 90 uh, first part of 96 out of Salt Lake City sponsored by Brugger's Bagels uh, the Einstein that yeah. turned into, okay. Yeah. So Einstein's and that was a uh, Levi Leibheimer, Burke Swindlehurst, yes. myself, and this wonderful person little on Dave earth. Little Dave Zabriskie. Yeah. Little Dave Zabriskie was about 16 years old. And this other gentleman who nobody knows, but 
His name is Eric Messenger. He's now a, a smoke jumper out of Idaho. Oh, wow. And uh, he and his wife both. And anyway, that that part, I parlayed that into an opportunity with Nutrafig, which turned into Mercury um, several years later. And I was with that organization all in for about eight years. So uh, interesting. I and, and maybe it was you, my first possible interaction with you, uh, the Hyuentus stage race. Did you do that I'm in that sure area? <laughs> That was from uh, Uintas to Camas to uh, Evanston, Wyoming. Yeah. And um, right, right. I remember you, I think Burke was there and yeah. maybe you and you guys pulled up and I think someone had some medals hanging out of your your mirror or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. But the the thing that was interesting about that day was uh, Zabriskie because he did like the um, the junior race and he came in solo just smashing the field. Yeah. And then that year out at Super Week, he was he was winning race after race after race. And you just right. knew that, you know, something was going to come of that guy. Right. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, Levi was there. Um, so he, you guys went from that and then you went into, it was Comptel, right? Yeah. Mercury. And, uh, just looking at kind of the roster of some of those guys, I, I'm going to bring up some names okay. because now it reminds me of, uh, so I raced with oil me for a while. I don't right, remember right. that. Yeah, and it was kind of the same thing with you and Comptel where a bunch of young guys and then some older guys mixed in that were kind of, has been, or, you know, I'm not saying Thurlow Rogers was has been, but him, right. Andy Bishop, right? Yep. Some guys that had done some things, but weren't for some reason on any other teams. Right. But one guy that struck my, um, my memory was David Klinger. Yes. So uh, the guy, I, what do you think? I mean, cause the, the situation with him is his, his facial tattoo right? and became kind of a big deal. And he got booted off of, I'm trying to webcore maybe at the time at the time. Yeah. And then kind of had a whole downfall drug issues, trying to come back. And, um, I guess my question is, and you don't have to say anything about this, but did you see any of this coming from someone like Dave Klinger? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, when Dave was with us, he was a very young guy and he was incredibly talented. And I think a lot of people had kind of earmarked him as the next great classics rider, you know, and Dave, was like any young guy he was you know he was influenced and um he wanted to be something that he wasn't as a bike rider like he wanted to be a pure climber and he just wasn't like yeah, he yeah. was he was kind of a stocky kid and yeah. but super powerful and and a really good sprinter and really good at the end of like 150k and he ended up getting um I'd have to go back and look, uh, but he got a really good result at Philly that that one year. He he got a, and then he parlayed that into a job with Festina, and I don't know what happened after that. I I haven't ever really spoken to Dave since he went to uh, actually Postal. He was on Festina and then he went to Postal. And when he was in Festina, I can only imagine in that era for a guy that young that. You know, I think he was influenced by some people there. Um, Dave came up with a really solid upbringing, like very wholesome family, very supportive family. So there was nothing that you would have believed that he would get into anything that he shouldn't have. And I'm not I have no idea if he did or he didn't. But he definitely changed when he was at Festina. And what you what I can't imagine is that a young American guy on a French team at that point. For sure, he's not getting good race starts. I mean, he's doing probably every lousy Belgian Kermesse or Belgian race you can imagine. <laughs> right. And, you know, he ended up going to the Vuelta one year, and he rode actually quite well. I think when he was on Festina, he was riding. They had the lead at one point, I believe. And he, he was riding the front. I remember watching him on TV. And then 
Then, then the next year, I think he went to Postal. And then after that, it, it got a little bit strange for him. But yeah, he, he did show up with, he disappeared for a while. And then he came back and he had all these facial tattoos. And I think the community was trying to support him. We were. I know I know the people who had raced with him. We were trying to support him. Right. And he just he just had some kind of trouble going on. He wasn't square, so I'm not sure really what happened. Yeah, maybe some demons going on there. Uh, so your team then evolves out uh, Mercury to like HealthNet. And my other interaction um, or remembrance of you, I was here, and I, correct me because my memory could be yeah. totally wrong, but I think it was right. Uh, watching the Tour of California in 2007, and I think it was your last race with them coming into the circuits and you had a flat before you came in and it, it, is this is this even correct because this is the way that the news hey okay. mike sayer's last race at the tour of california coming into town and he's not getting a chance to sprint in his hometown sacramento yeah and stuff like i that. actually crashed um I, I actually crashed on the on that west sacramento run-in yeah. i was trying to get to the i was actually trying to take a couple of our guys to the front and I got a little – it was my hometown, and it was the first time Tour of California had come to Sacramento. Right. So, of course, I mean, we had dreamed about this kind of an event our whole lives. And I got a little bit overzealous, and I, I went into uh, – I try, I took a few too many risks. I ended up crashing. And uh, it was disappointing, but, yeah, lesson learned. I mean, you know, it was like – it was. That's, that's all I can say is it meant so much to me that – tour of california had come to sacramento and was like in my hometown and i had spent all these years away from my hometown never racing in my hometown outside of you know like lampart criterium that you know it was just so overzealous and i just got a little bit ahead of myself so out you know head above the ski out of the, in front of your skis yeah the look so the team happens you're in the mix when they decide because john warden i think was your your manager right for most of that kind of section of, of racing up until mercury and then he when mercury stopped he stopped or he went on to other things and then when health net started we had a, a a guy from georgia jeff corbett yeah, right, right and then um corbett was the manager until i left and went to bmc but when you're with mercury it seemed like you guys had uh, or maybe warden's idea was trying to get into the tour so you brought in yeah. like pedagogon um I'm trying to remember these guys. Pedigum. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Floyd Landis, obviously. And I remember yeah. there were some contract issues, but your, your big drive to get into the tour that year did not come about. And you yeah. know some of these teams have taken on big riders and a big budget in the hopes that, hey, we're going to get selected. And um, what was your role in that, that season? And how was that? Because your budget, I imagine, went way up because your team basically doubles in size. Yeah, it was that year was... We probably, as a group, have more stories from that season of 2001 than any than 10 seasons combined. But yeah, at, at that point, um, there was a long stretch where I was the only guy, and then I was the only guy in Europe, and then Floyd would come, and it was like there was there was a long stretch, like two or three months during the classics, where Floyd and I were literally the only two Americans on this team racing. And my manager or director at that point was Alain Galapin, who just recently right. retired from Trek. And, you know, very helpful guy. I I love Alain. He's a he's a good he was a good director. He was had a ton of knowledge. And, you know, I mean, it was a weird era and I was just trying to survive. I mean, the fact was I was just trying to survive. And I was in a support role for sure. 
And I was doing the classics. I did all the classics. And I this is what I'll say because I ended up working closely with Herb Van Bont, who was a rider on that team, and then ended up being a he's now a manager at Quick Step. Um, but he was running the BMC under twenty three team. Anyway, we had some overlap, and uh, you know those those Belgian guys t- treated me very well. I have not one bad thing to say. They tried to help me as much as they could. But there is the one thing about Van Pettigem is if you watch peter race he is is and was and will always be one of the greatest classic riders of all time and i remember situations where uh, the one thing about peter is he liked one of two spots in the peloton either dead last and and i mean it <laughs> like like he was either last wheel or he was off the front and when he was last wheel there were several there were several races where i was in charge of just kind of looking after him and it would be a scenario where he would he would call me back and he would start to unload clothes. And, you know, the one thing, you know, Peter didn't say very much. He literally didn't say very much. He 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 just didn't. He wasn't very verbal. Um, But he was a good leader. And, you know, he knew those races. I mean, he clearly I mean, the guy won a ton of races there. Yeah, but yeah. but <clears throat> he would call he would call me back to take his clothes and to, and to kind of unload. And he would as he would get undressed you know, at the back of the field, knowing that his time was coming to perform, he would complain about the weather. You know, he would be like, I hate the, I hate it when it's like this. You know, he would complain about the race was too fast or the race was too slow. I mean, there was always, you know, he always had, he was just an everyday guy, right? Just like all of us. The thing that was really interesting was, is that he would like give me his clothes and I would go back to the car and I would start to unload his and everybody else's. And literally, I could when I was back at the car, like unloading clothes to the to Alan, I would hear on the radio that Peter was in the break, and I would just be like, "I just saw him." I just not no, I'm not even kidding you. Like two minutes ago, right. I was just next to him, and this was the kind of rider he was. We used to call him a magician because people have no idea how hard it is to move up in those races. Number one, roads are small, roads are bad and it's going wicked fast. But for him to just be able to buzz to the front and then all of a sudden he's just like, he's looking, 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 Oh, that's the one that's going to work. And he goes, it's like, that's another, that's like another level. That's like level you've never seen. And so I was just there to help. I mean, I literally would go back to the hotel at night or after the race and I would be crushed. I mean, cr- like physically destroyed. And those guys would go out and they would ride the next day, like three or four hours. I couldn't do it. Like I, I would go ride for an hour and I would I would just be like, I would be crying on my bike and we're riding, you know, because they would go out and they would still ride, you know, 42 or 45K an hour. And I would just be ragdolling on the back of these guys, you know, knowing that I had to race again tomorrow. So in, the, in my mind, I'm trying to calculate, okay, well, if I, if I do this today, and I raced 200k yesterday. Am I going to even be able to get out of bed tomorrow? So, what was your thinking of the hopes for the team? Because at some point, you have to wonder: Am I going to be able to sustain this, or do I hope it it doesn't go and we we go back down to a, like a Conti level? Oh no, no, no! I I definitely I was all I I wanted it to continue on. Right. I mean, it was for me. It was my it was my opportunity. Like no one. Five years before that, no one would have ever pointed at me and said, oh, that guy is going to possibly ride. That guy is going to start Tour of Flanders. Right. Or that guy's going to do this or do that. Like, this was my opportunity. So I had, I was trying to do every single thing I could 
to make it work. And then on top of all of that, even the, even when the team stopped, because if everybody remembers, the team kind of half ran out of money and we ended up finishing that season. And I, I really kid you not, we ended up finishing that season not getting paid, not getting our travel covered, and essentially splitting prize money. And those races included like Altoona, West Virginia, uh, not West Virginia, Green Mountain, mm-hmm. uh, some of those late season Easter East Coast races that we were that we were winning. Like that year, Floyd, I believe somebody will probably say I was wrong, but I believe Floyd won Altoona that year. And Altoona back then was a fortune. It was like a hundred thousand dollars in prize money. That we were living off of that money. That was paying the bills. And the, and there were a number of guys on that team that ended up in financial difficulty um, because they weren't getting paid for almost six months. I mean, we ended up getting our three-month bank guarantee, but at the end of the day, we ended up going like six months and not getting paid. This was a one? Yeah. So yeah, so you guys had to basically request that from the, the UCI, the bank yes. guarantee and all that. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like the team when I was with Oil Me, we were part of the reason that that had to be the case, <laughs> because uh, our team manager was uh, kind of floating the bill himself a lot, and we weren't getting funds. He was kind of you know they went to Malaysia, a uh, bunch of winning out there with Chad Gerlach, and were expected to get paid, and he was hoping to kind of use some of, the, and yeah. it never happened, and um, the IRS came and took his stuff anyway. So it's good for the 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 structure, to, I think, to have the bank guarantee and that you guys had to utilize that. But I remember a big controversy with, um, uh, I guess it was it who was it Warden was it there? No, he was still there. Yeah, he was there. Him and uh, Landis, kind of um, whether Landis was going to go to the new team with Lance and some issues with with uh, his income. So yeah, well, it, it was hard. I mean, Floyd was in a difficult position because. Um, I mean, you know, we, we we were the ones who found Floyd. I mean, I, and Floyd is was a great rider, is a great person, but you know, we dug him out of nothing. And when he came with us, we could see within five minutes. I mean, not even five minutes. It was like five seconds. And I remember we all looked at each other. We ended up we we actually ran into him in, for the first time, I think, in Cantua Creek of all places. Mm. And it was it was Floyd and five Mercury guys in the break. And Gord Fraser, who was the guy that I rode for most of my career and and for many years, my my best friend, um, Floyd turned or uh, Gord turned to Floyd and and told him, "Hey, listen. So this is how this is going to go down. There's five of us and there's one of you, and we're going to take first and second, and you can have third, and then we'll take fourth and fifth, no problem." And Floyd just looked him square in the eye and he said, "Give me your best shot because I'm not giving you it. I'm not giving it to you." And he just went right to the front and tr- literally tried to ride five of us off the wheel. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie to you. He came pretty darn close. And after the race, we finished. I, I think Floyd ended up third, but we finished. And Gordon and I looked at each other, and we rode right to Warden. And we said, that guy in the silver and blue jersey over there, you need to go sign that guy right now. Like, don't even think twice. And that was kind of the beginning. And then, you know, he went on to get his own success like every bike rider does. But, you know, Floyd was – that was the type of guy he was. And, and I mean, we have a million stories about why he is the way he is or was the way he was. But he, he was successful because he was stubborn. Warden was very stubborn. And when he put two stubborn people together, um, a lot of time there can be friction. You know, Warden was not an easy manager to have. He was he was not very sympathetic. Um, but – 
I, I don't what I want to say about John is that he taught me a lot that I used in future in my future when I went to direct and I was in management at the national team. He taught me a, a ton, maybe more than anybody about what it is to build a team and what you need to have a successful team. And I'm not saying he did this consciously. Some of this was subconscious for sure, but he taught me what it is to build a team. And the one thing that he taught me that I still live by today is that you go for like team speed will overcome any deficit. So yes, you, you need to have climbers and you need to have sprinters and guys who work and time and you need all that for sure. But what he would do is he would go and he would look at a guy like Scott Moniger and he would say, okay, you have Moniger and he's probably the best climber at that time or the best pure climber at that time and, and a top five time trialist. Okay, so clearly he's a stage racer. But he can write criteriums as well as any guy. Right. And if you watch that guy, he can actually sprint pretty well. Right. So what he would do is he made it a point to make sure he got Moniger because he knew that we, the, the fast guys on the team, the Gords and myself and... Derek Bouchard Hall and John Peters and all these guys that were really, really fast, we can go to these races and make it really, really fast. And Scott will not get dropped. And if you look at teams that came before us, specifically Coors Light, they had actually a similar model. Lynn Petty John, who was a mentor of, of monitors, Petty John did the same thing. He built a bunch of fast guys and then he threw Mike Engelman in there. Right. The problem with Engelman was Engelman was not very fast and he wasn't very good at handling his bike. So he would run into trouble. But Scott was the total opposite. Scott was extremely good at handling his bike and he was really fast. Well, Engelman, a little late to the game. He had been a runner. So yeah. maybe that had played into it. You know, your point about um, Monogram being a great crit rider is, is exactly true. Uh, what's interesting, I was looking, you know, um, Levi, another climber guy, he won the amateur criterium championships in 96. Yep. So, you know, you had Vodders, another guy that could handle himself in crits. So I don't know, is you ask, let me ask you this. So with the young kids coming up, do you see them having to be so good at crit riding as what the pros used to be able to, or had to do at the time? Horner, another one, right? That could uh, do well at, super weak we're out there and he laps us twice yeah. in a crit i mean this yeah. is a climber guy but i guess back then he wasn't as much but young kids now are they forced to be able to crit ride for us once as they were back then well i think <clears throat> i think the young guys today it's definitely a different it's a different mindset from top to bottom for the young guys and it's a different approach they don't race as much number one uh because training is better and you have power meters things like that right so they're not forced to race criteriums like we were forced to race criteriums they're not a normal part of their operation and when you go to europe for sure you're not getting a crit right. so between like axel's team the national team um and teams that have come before and even teams like uh like jelly belly where they would go to asia a lot again there's not a lot of criterium so i think i think some of the young guys see less criteriums than they used to i also think that because they're given larger opportunities globally they don't feel like they need to ride a local criterion because it's it's like well you know i just got back from a three-week trip and i don't really i'm just gonna go train as opposed to go race you know uh i don't know a criterion in pleasanton or something like that so i don't think they race crits as much i it would it would be great if they did i think it would i'm always a proponent of pushing riders to another level on the other hand at the national team 
we used to circumnavigate that problem by sending a lot of our guys to Holland. Um, and my old boss, Jim Miller, who was at Oil Me, I right, think right. with you. Yes. You know, Jim had a saying and uh, Jim and I actually had a lot of sayings. I really love Jim. But um, he had a saying and I embraced the saying as I got into it, which is if you can make it in Holland, you can make it anywhere, literally. And I, I kid you not. If you can race in Holland and be even remotely successful, you can make it anywhere. And I think you can see this now. Like if you go to YouTube, there's a lot of these Dutch amateur races that are uh, that they show the race like just on YouTube. It's like bike footage, you know. And at first, you're looking at this when you and they'll have the whole race. It'll be like four hours long. And you look at it, and at first you're just watching it, and they're just watch they're they're on these flat roads, and they're just you know it's typical left right left right you know road furniture everywhere. But then they always have the little like graphics at the bottom, like the speed and the power and the whole thing. And you start watching that, and all of a sudden you're like, you're like that guy has been sitting on <laughs> 350 watts yeah. for like an hour and a half. And you then you then you start really watching it, and you watch his power, like you watch how the power goes. And you're just and you're like, yeah, but they're five wide, and the guy and the speed is, you know, fifty two k an hour, and he's doing over three hundred watts. And then you realize you're like, oh my lord, like that's serious. And so, you know, we used to send guys to Holland, mostly climbers, a lot of the time, because you just want them to learn how to race. And the only way to learn how to race is to go race those <clears throat> Dutch races. Yeah, for sure. I, I imagine so. Yeah. Uh, so you speaking of the the younger group, uh, you had a bunch of time working with the U23. Um, who in there did you work with that's kind of come up and about that everyone would know about? Well, uh, Nielsen, for sure. Right. Uh, Sean Bennett now. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the list is actually really long. Um, I think I, I think I can just say that of the 30 or so guys that came through the program at any given time. How long were you doing that? Uh, four years. I was a national team coach. And I would say that of the 30 regular attendants of our national team program, at least 85 to 90 percent of those guys are, are racing at the pro level. So, you know, there's there's Costa, there's uh, Nielsen, there's Sean Bennett, uh there's even, I mean, it's it's sometimes hard to remember. Iman Lucas. There's um, um, uh, uh, Ben. Um, oh my lord, Ben Wolf. Okay. Um, I mean, the list just can go on. So we, I mean, we we really had a great thing going there, and we really had a great uh, group of riders. And even even uh, what I will say this is, even the guys that so that fifteen or twenty percent that didn't make it. Actually, those those fifteen or twenty percent are off doing some really impressive things. So we have guys like Max Durchke, who's a, a, a Northeast guy who's on the national biathlon team, and he went to Middlebury. Maybe he went to Middlebury College or one of those Ivy League colleges. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have um, a couple of guys like uh, Stephen Lease from Santa Barbara. He works, I think, in tech at a really high level. So. You know, they all went on to something very successful and they spent some time with us and and contributed to the to the greater outcome. And now they're on doing other things. Did you take it upon yourself to try to help these kids of not everyone's going to be a big star? And so, you know, we're here, we're coaching you doing this. uh, But what about your life maybe after or well, 
Yeah, if you don't make it big. I mean, was that ever something to try to help with these kids? That was a big part of it. Uh, we, we really tried to have, and I tried to spend a lot of time with a lot of conversation about, okay, what's going to happen if this doesn't happen for you? And, you know, what are you going to do? What's your plan? What do you have an interest? Do you, you know, do you have, do you like art? Do you like, you know, literature? Do you, do you, do you like working with your hands? Can you build something? You know, so we, we really would encourage guys to stay in school, finish out their winter semesters or their spring semesters. And then I always guaranteed guys, listen, if you can't come in the spring, because you're going to school, I will absolutely make a spot for you in the summer or in the late mm. spring or in the late, sorry, the late summer into that fall, which is a, which is really important for the national team because that's the approach to tour to Lavenir, which is the biggest under 23 stage race in the world. Right. So, you know, sometimes I would have double programs uh, and I would spend extra budget just so guys who were going to school had a place to come and race in the late summer and get the European experience. Yeah, because I imagine the European experience is kind of what, like you said, sent them to Holland, doing all these other things the best way uh, to make it go forward. So you're with them. Uh, you've also done some stuff with the BMC uh, program, like kind of from its inception. Is that is that kind of what happened from when you were done with uh, Mercury or, or HealthNet? Yeah. So um, Gavin Shulcott, who started that team, I mean, started, started the team. It was an amateur team in 2007. And he and I actually have this strange uh, connection, like this kind of strange familial connection, like way, way, way back. But I knew Gavin uh, from my racing days. Um, I respected him. I knew he was a trendsetter, like had gone to Italy just after George Mount was part of that. Like, I mean, he really was a trailblazer. And then he ended up disappearing for a while. At the time, I didn't know what he was doing, but he ended up getting his uh, PhD in microbiology. Mm. So incredibly smart guy. Anyway, he approached me in 2007 and asked me if I would be interested in becoming the senior member at that point of this BMC team, which he said was going to end up going to a very high level. And this was this was a a phoenix from the ashes of the Phonak team. Right. So you know he was reinventing it, and I I had maybe three or four conversations with him, and I just said, yeah, I absolutely no question. And then I ended up, I was able to, in, to bring Moniker with me. So we kind of did it together. Um, and Gord had retired at that point. So it gave us all kind of a new start on a new program. And I was with that as a writer for three years. And then we, and then I, I got a, an incredible, completely unique opportunity to move into management in the, the director's role. There had not been a director, an American director at a world tour team since Mike Neal. You you could say Jonathan Botters, but he was a manager. I mean, yeah. he was looking at the global picture. <clears throat> so it was really like Mike Neal and then me. And um, and I jumped at it. I didn't even hesitate. And I really, I really enjoyed that position. I, I, I really would venture to say that I enjoyed being a director maybe more than I did being a writer. I, I miss the camaraderie. It's two different things. Like I miss the camaraderie of being a rider. Like I miss the guys being part of that locker room, quote unquote. Right. But from a from a like from a ten thousand foot view, I much more enjoyed being a director. And when I left BMC, it was because I wanted to reconnect with my family. I was a little bit out of touch, um, and I wanted to reconnect with my family. And then when I got the opportunity to go to the national team, it was almost like a perfect hybrid. 
it was like Jim had created this perfect hybrid of a program that I was able to step into and was able to race at a really high level because that's what I really cared about. But at the same time, have meaningful relationships with guys. Um, and whether those guys know it or not, I mean, they they taught me as much as I ever taught them, probably more about what it was to, you know, to fight and to be keep yourself sane and to um, to deal with with uh, not having any success to deal with having success. And as the thing went along, I mean, we really had a plan. We really had a plan where we thought the thing was going to end up and where it was going to go. And the plan was working. I mean, the, the last year I was there, we had Costa on the podium at Tour de L'Avenir and Nielsen won the stage at the top of the quad of right. And I mean, that was it. Like the next year we were going to get McNulty was going to come into the program and we were going to get a few more guys. And USA Cycling wanted to go a different direction. They wanted to pursue this track thing. And so that's the direction that they went. And I ended up having to leave the program. But we were on a good path. I mean, we really were on a good path at that moment. What What is their status right now? Um, it's a question you would have to ask Derek that question. I, well, he's I don't. stepping out, right? Yeah. He was the teammate of yours as well, I think. He was. He was. So... Oh, okay. So I, I'm not going to ask Derek because I'm not. I'm not. I don't have yeah, the connections. I, I don't know where they're going right. But now. as far as uh, they, do they have a road team like they did before with you there, or is it? Uh... Yeah, they have a road team, and it's it's very much scaled down. I mean, it's about it's about the fifth of the size when I was there. Um, and it's just you know we we really would when I was there we were aiming for a hundred race days a year for the program. So you know we would shoot for a hundred race days a year all in Europe. So it was like, you know, a lot of 2.1s, 2.2s, you know, 1.2s, some amateur racing. But for the most part, I I took those guys to UCI races. I very rarely, I would only take them to an amateur race or an under 23 race if it was at the top level. So like Aosta uh, in the Aosta Valley of Italy or um, if it was some of these other Italian races that, and, and there were a couple of programs that were clearly models for me. Like I really tried to model our program off the Australian model. They have an, they have an absolutely incredible, incredibly successful under twenty three program. I mean, hands down, probably the best in the world. And so I tried to model my program after theirs. The British also have a great program. The uh, the the Danish and the Norwegians have a great program. So you know those were, and even the French, the French came very late, but but very successful. So like Godou won Tour de l'Avenir and, you know, I mean, they, they came with some very success, some success late because again, they were building it in a very systematic manner. Um, and French cycling has, has, has had a re, uh, revelation really in the last like five years. Right. Right. I, I, it'll be interesting to see if they can capitalize and, and give the top step of the tour, which is what they're obviously with Bardet and, um, I don't know if they really have who do they have besides Bardet, uh, Pinot, Pinot, and then they have this young Godou, uh, uh, who's been with Wanty Group, Gobert. That. Yeah, and then there's a young guy who went to um, FDJ, and I can't think of his name right now. But they they have some they have some quality riders. I mean, they they have riders that can develop into something for sure, into race winners for sure. And their development program is really good. I mean, they they really do. They have a director there that's very hands on, very kind and caring, and very well does very well and you need a development because you obviously have to have that influx coming up you know bmc 
they had kind of a development program going and right. they cut that out. And to some extent, I, I guess I understand because if you're just developing these writers and then they're going elsewhere, that's not really going to help you as much. Yes and no. But if you look at the the most successful under twenty three program in history was the Robobank program. Okay. So if you look at Robobank and they and, and these guys do it right, I tell you these guys do it right. So they're they're now Lotto Jumbo. They're not right. Lotto Jumbo anymore. They just got a new sponsor. But that's the team that Nielsen rides for. These guys do it right. So if you historic if if you look, they had juniors under twenty threes, the pro guys, the pro women. They were they had every level. And they would take these riders from juniors and they would take them to the under 23s and they would expose them to really hard racing, really good racing. And, you know, the fact is they probably burned out more guys than they than they drove to the next level. But they the way they looked at it was if one of their riders went on to be a professional for them, that was a success. Mm. They really believe that they really believe that it didn't. Okay, they want they clearly wanted the best of the best for their own right, right, right. world tour program. But there's nothing wrong with a rider going to another team because if you if he has a good history with your team, there's probably an excellent chance he will come back. So, you know, let's say he goes to a French team and he rides for 2 years and then he's like, "Oh, you know, I I'm I'm going to go back." He knows the directors, he knows the manager, he picks up the phone, he makes a phone call. If he's successful or has continued success, they'll probably take him back because he knows the system. So why do you think uh, BMC dumped that? Was it more of an economics thing? I, I, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I don't know. I wasn't there at the time. You weren't part of that. That's yeah, I wasn't bad. part of it. I mean, I was part of it from the outside. Like they, right, right, right. We were racing against those right. guys, but I don't know what the inner workings were. What, what's your feeling now that you know you had you basically were in the start with them and they're essentially gone i mean cccc is kind of in the new team but i don't know that that's really um my overall feeling on it is that it's a great program it was a great program tons of super talented people from staff to riders went through that program and learned their trade they take care of their riders at the highest level they care about their riders their riders perform very well. The company BMC puts a ton into R and D, which is, has a lot to do with their success. Right. Um, and I think that you know that's an ongoing chapter in the Jim Okowitz saga. Which at the end of the day, when Jim retires or moves on and re- retires at Beaver Lake in Wisconsin, <laughs> which my wife, my wife's family lives there. There, oh, okay. Um, when Jim finally hangs it up, I mean. I, I just there's he's going to have to be acknowledged as probably the most influential personality in American cycling ever. Well, sure. You know, and so it, this is just another chapter in that book. And and he listen, he has done things in the past that no one else could get done. So you 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 have to give him the credit. You have to acknowledge his success. And he's a driven, highly driven individual. And he only settles for success. So. You know, he, he's taught a lot of people how to do things and sent them on their way. And then, you know, people have had their own successes outside of his teams. So staying on kind of the world tour idea, what's your thought of uh, them going away? And then like Sky, you know, has their sponsorship is, is dwindled out for the next few years. And just kind of your what what's your view of the map of the sport and uh, take it from there? 
I think we have to change the business model. Okay. Um, the business model needs to change. I think a. Uh, Do you I have think, some ideas on how? Well, I think we have some great examples right now. Like I think the Israeli Academy team is a great example. So it is a it is a professional team. They started as a very small team and they grew it step by step. The manager uh, Ran Margolay is there has grown that program every single step of the way. But they they're racing under the umbrella of a community so the jewish community is a big community that in that community transcends borders it transcends economics it transcends everything so it's something that their community can get behind and can succeed with and support and see a lot of success so that's a great example of a different business model that I think is ultimately going to be super successful. I mean, they already are, but I mean, like Tour de France successful. So, where do they get their funding? Is it uh... they they do they do have some donors that that support them, but it's but the donors are supporting them. And again, I you know I I don't want to speak their message because I don't know it as well as they do. But their donors are supporting the cause, not just the team. So the cause of like of expanding cycling in a community that didn't traditionally have cycling, right, right, right. expanding the cause, you know, that they are a global community and they tra- they do transcend borders and they do transcend economics and all those things. So it, it's really they're they're just trying to further their their message, whatever that individual message is. And the team is just a platform for that. So I think it's a great business model. For no, no. And for them, I can see that. I think it. It could be different if you try to twist that Katusha. I mean, we we didn't have like a yeah. The, so it's I don't know how that works. And and the problem you have with cycling is it's not held. It's the Forty ers or Oakland Raiders, you know, and you buy their gear and you go to the stadium and the stadium collects fees and it's so wide open and accessible. It's I think it's very difficult to to really really bring that in. And look yeah. at Colorado. I mean, they've now gone taking the men out and uh, just having a women's only race. What do you think of, of their decision to do that? Well, I think, I mean, I think every organization has to figure out what's going to work for them. Right. And I think the ladies group right now is extremely dynamic. Right. I mean, a lot of good racing, a lot of good teams, a lot of opportunities. So I, I, I mean, it, you know, women's athletics right now is on a big upswing and it's probably long overdue. So, they're capitalizing on an upswing and they're I, I'm sure they're they're a for profit company, so they have to maximize their dollars. Right. And the men come with you know, the men come with with baggage. I that's not a good word. But you know, it's it's more expensive about- to get them there. Oh gotcha. The teams are bigger. Right. It's they expect more. Right. You know, and I think the ladies teams can come, they can run a little leaner. You know, leaner like they don't have to have as many staff and they don't have to do all that stuff. But they they come and they race just as hard and just as well as the men. And sometimes the racing is more exciting. Right. So I I think for Colorado, I mean, you would have to ask them. But I I, I think they clearly saw some value in it, and they're just going to pursue that for a while. Okay, that's awesome. You know, the the men have a lot of racing that they can go and do. And on top of everything else, let's be honest. I mean, these teams they want the best teams in the world, and that time of year for Colorado is very difficult for the world tour teams. Right. They have a lot. They have tour of Poland. They got the Vuelta. They've got Belgium. I think at that time, that's a, I mean, that's a lot of riders that you have to try to support. And if no world tour team wants to show up to a race with five guys, because that's not a show of strength. 
that's a show that you're just throwing some guys in a bike race. Well, and I don't know, maybe the attitude is they come over here and it's a little, hey, the U.S. in this time of year, I'm kind of burnt. I'm just going to yeah, I'm going to enjoy be. Colorado. So the show that gets put on by the women is maybe a little bit more interesting at this point. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it could be. It could I, be. I don't know. We're speculating yeah, that that's sure. what we do here. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll wrap this up in a little bit. Let's ask you, though, about uh, the, the amateur racing masters, because that's that's what you do now. <laughs> uh, your team is a die endurance and a touchstone in racing. I think uh, you guys have a good team yeah. on this area. Yeah. And, you can talk about that a little bit, but I also want you to just touch real quick on what do you think the future is of road racing uh, with the gravel coming on and everything else like that? Oh, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I think the gravel thing is really, really interesting. I think you could – so, you know, gravel is, is global at this point, yes, but it kind of – I feel like it kind of started here in America. And, you know, America has done some really uh, unique things. High School Mountain Bike League is the – probably the shining example right. of taking a different approach. So I think the gravel is going to open opportunities for teams. It's going to open opportunities for sponsors. It's going to open opportunities for riders, you know? And so it just gives you more things to, to do and different things to do and more experiences to have, because ultimately I think the gravel scene is about the experience. Now, it, it certainly can morph or and has morphed to a degree, but probably will morph more so into more of a competitive thing. But it's more of an internal competition. It's like me competing against myself. So more marathon-like? Yeah, more marathon-like. Yeah, I, I think Which that's... Which I don't know if you listened or watch our show, but Chris did the, the CIM, uh, what, two weeks ago, and he, he pondered... You know, this is so much interest out there. There's all these people. It's such a positive atmosphere. And then you go to a bike race and it just seems not. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, they maybe the, if you're talking about the experience. Yeah. And I think the experience is, you know, you do, you do these grasshopper events or whatever. Right. And the vibe is really cool. Like everybody's supportive. And there is for sure there's a competition factor. But I, I think it really I enjoy it. I mean, I, I've done Lost and Found. I did Saigon's Grand Fondo. I did. um um a few other small things, but I, I have my gravel bike and I get out and I do it. And I think it's a great, I, I think it's a great way to do it. And if they, if we can get some kids into doing it, I think it bridges that gap between the mountain biking part of it and the road riding. Because as a, as a father of a 12 year old or nearly a 12 year old, I understand like getting, letting your kid out on the open road can be a little nerve wracking right. and you can only ride the bike trail so many times. But if you can get them out on some gravel roads where there's not no cars, I mean that's a great that's a great gap to kind of fill. Does your son race ride? Does he? He, he does not. He uh, he rides with me occasionally. We do a ride together, but it's not his focus, and we're totally okay with that. Right, and you, and you have to be. Um, uh, a, a reader com commented in uh, Sean Bagley, as of course you know yeah, him. Yeah. He wanted to know what it was like uh, leading out Gord Fraser all those years on the sprints, especially in Europe. If you did that. Well, I can say this is um, it's a really unique experience when you have a rider of that caliber that literally can come through 95% of the time. It makes – I mean I would say that the, the guys at Mercury that were the workers, for lack of a better term, physically their job was harder but mentally – a lot less difficult right. because it was very easy. It was like we ride we ride flat out until 200 meters and then that's it. And so, you know, for me, it still, you know, 
he instilled in me a, a level of confidence that I never could have had in myself. I think it was a it was a two way street though because I remember many oppor- many situations where I would go back to Gord and he would be like, "Yeah, I just don't feel it today. Like I think we should ride for somebody else." Uh, he didn't feel well, or he just didn't he just didn't think he could get it done. And we would kind of say, "Hey, you know, hey, let's just get to like 10k to go and let's reevaluate." And a guy like that, when you get him within 10k to go, it's like a horse to a barn. Like then he throws the switch and then it's on. Right, right. You know, and you know what? If you if you have a guy that's that successful and that knowledgeable and 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 that and the type of leader that will hold everybody accountable for good or for bad, you know, it you get to that point in a bike race and you're you will you will go you will go that extra mile. Like you will shoot that gap that you wouldn't normally shoot before. Or you will you know, you when you when you think, yeah, man, I'm just my legs are done, like I just can't do this. You will take that one second extra pull just to try to get him, you know, one second farther down the road because you know in the back of your mind there is a ninety-five percent chance that he's going to win today, which benefits all of us. I mean, it does. Gord, Gord, uh, anybody want to check in on him? He's got a, a, a prolific career, a lot of wins, and now he's coaching or managing with uh, Floyd, I think, right? That's correct. And he had yeah, been doing correct. the uh, silver cycling team, so yep. Canadian, big, uh, big history in cycling. So, was he maybe the best finisher that you worked with over the years? Consistently, yeah, consistently, yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm willing to go out there and say, yeah, he was the best finisher I ever by quite a bit because it what it wasn't just the consistency; it was the the knowledge base. You know, he he knew how to win sprints, not just not just fastest guy to the line, but I mean, he knew how to come from behind. Although he didn't like to do that, he knew how to, you know, he knew how to hold people off. He knew, you know, he knew his competition, so when he went into a sprint and he was looking around and he would see, you know, Graham Miller on one side, or even those years, like when it was Cipollini, you know, he knew what those guys could do and he would work it out in his mind, how he needed to have the sprint go so that he could try to win. And, you know, when you ride with a guy for almost 10 years, you know what he likes. And, and for me, you know, it was very easy. I knew exactly I knew exactly what he liked and what he didn't like. You know, he didn't like to be in the washing machine behind, you know, he wanted to be out on his own or he wanted to be in front of all the other sprinters, which was why very often he would come to us and say, Hey, we have to start working now because, you know, in the, he, he would come up with some reason, but ultimately he just didn't want to be fighting for wheels. Right. Right. Speaking of Cipollini, um, you rode rode with Malcolm Elliott, is that correct? Was he I did for one was he year. the original Cipollini off the bike? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I'll, and you know what I'll say about Malcolm is I got him at the end of his career, right, right. but you know he was he was kind of on his way. You know he was definitely kind of on his way out mentally, probably more than physically. But we went on that little run at Philly that year. Oh no, Tour de Bose that year uh, when we had Vodders and Trent Klasna. and Malcolm. I tell you. Those guys, we would not have. We got first and third on GC that year, Tour de Bose. Um, I believe Vodders won and Trent was third. It may be the other way around, but Malcolm was the one who got us to the finish. Malcolm was the one who, like, said, you know, who like went from being thirty-eight years old to like twenty-eight overnight. <laughs> right. And he For was at least a day or two. Yeah, and he was like, "Oh, we're doing this. Right. You know, we're doing this." And and it was 
that was a great experience for me because he he was as smart as any bike rider you ever know. But he just was on his way out at that point and he was ready to stop. But then he got that little injection of youth and he saw the young guys like fighting and trying to make it happen. And it, it took 10 years off his life overnight, like you said. Yeah, it did it for me. So quick question. Um, favorite Christmas movie? Oh, Die Hard. I, I, we just saw that the other night. I introduced that to all the kids and they loved it. Die so hard, I, I don't know, sure. you know who Cosmo Catalano is. He's been doing, he does videos and stuff for cycling, um, how the race was won. He's been doing a, a 12 days of Christmas of Die Hard and okay. doing a, a breakdown. You should check that out. It's pretty good. Um, how, how do people get a hold of you uh, with your business and if they need to contact you or need, want a training or anything? They Yeah, you can just go to our website, dieendurance.com. So it's D-A-I, in the word endurance, all one word, dot uh, com. Just go to the website. We got a, a great website. You can hit the the uh, contact us button and it'll come right to my email and we'll go from there. And they could go hang out at the, at the facility. Yeah, you as can well. come down and get a bike fit or whatever, or do some strength and conditioning classes, whatever, whatever, you know, we're very flexible. We're very open. All right. Well, good luck to you this season. And Brody, thanks for coming in as well. It's Brody, right? Yeah, it's Brody. And uh, <laughs> well, thanks for having us. We're, we're, it's great to be guests here. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. And I plan on having you again uh, later on in the year. We could talk some more cycling because uh, world tour, everything that happens in Northern California, the women's race, uh, tour of California, everything that's going on, you obviously have a big voice in it. So appreciate you coming in. Yeah. Thanks everybody. Thanks for watching. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks.